When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. This is episode five. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al-Samad. So what we've got for this episode is we're going to talk about um, Lucid, which is the latest uh, battery electric super sedan kind of thing. Uh, like a Tesla, but different. So we'll talk about that. Uh, Sam, you went out to uh, lovely Pittsburgh and had an interview with uh, Mary Gostansky from Delphi. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Then we'll We'll listen to the interview. Um, and then also I have a crazy idea about uh, we, we kind of need another oil crisis, and I know that's nuts, so we can talk about that. Uh, because we can never have enough crises in this yeah, world. I mean, you know, let's just, let's just pile them on now. Like, we're, we're used to it. Um, so we'll, we'll get to all that. Uh, but first, the garage. So what are you driving? I have a 2017 Audi A4, uh, and it's the first Audi I've driven in quite a few years. Um, actually, I uh, took it uh, on my little road trip to Pittsburgh on Monday, um, and uh, turns out I really like this car. Yeah, that's uh, not a terrible way to go to Pittsburgh, for sure. Yeah, you know, for, for a road <laughs> trip, um, you know, having a German sports sedan um, is definitely a good way to go, you know, especially, you know, if you don't have a bunch of kids to haul along, uh, which I don't. So, um, yeah, no, because it's, it's about uh, it's about a little more than a four hour drive from where I am here, just outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan, to Pittsburgh. And, um, yeah, this is a fabulous car. Uh, this is a, a two liter turbo uh, with the um, qu- with Quattro all wheel drive. Uh and uh, it's the S line, so it's you know pretty nicely trimmed out, nice leather interior. And um, one of the interesting things, you know, kind of tying back to what we talked about last time about infotainment systems, this is um, one of the first Audis that has um, support for Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. And I've driven quite a few different brands of vehicles now that have Android Auto and CarPlay support, but this is the first one I've tried that doesn't have a touchscreen. Um, Audi. Uh, like most of the uh, its its German competitors, its premium German competitors, um, has they use a, a central control knob similar to the iDrive. Audi calls theirs MMI system. Yeah, and uh, so you have to use the the control knob to navigate around on the screen. Uh, the screen itself is uh, I think it's about an eight inch display, and like a lot of newer cars, it's. It looks like a tablet that's standing up on top of the dashboard, uh, and it's uh, it, it's you know it looks it's a it's a really nice display. Uh, everything looks really clear, and even you know with bright sunshine on it, you know coming in from the side, it's still very visible. So uh, excellent visibility on the screen, and you know. 
once it once I had a, a little bit of time to play around with it and figure out which which way I had to move or twi- push or twist the knob in order to get the uh, to hit the control points I, I needed on the screen, uh, it was actually fine. Yeah. Because you know, norm- all all the others I've tried so far have been touch screens. So you know it's like using your phone. You just you know tap on the microphone button to talk or you know hit you know play pause whatever you know go to the go to maps. Uh, so this is the first time I had to uh, use the knob. You know so to to go up and down if you're if you've used Android Auto you know it's got uh, a row of icons along the bottom for um, the for Google Maps, uh, the phone and messaging, um, the the main home screen, um, the, uh, your media apps, and then finally uh, one to go back to the main Audi screen. Uh, and so you have to push down, push the knob or pull the knob towards you. You know, basically going down to get to that row. Uh, if you're inside one of the screens, you know, then you can um, twist or yeah, you can uh, push the knob left or right. To go around, or sorry, you twist the knob <laughs> to to go around to start to toggle through the various touch targets on yeah. the screen. It's, and so, so it sounds it sounds a little just, weird at first, but I bet it becomes kind of intuitive. Although with MMI, I always turn it the wrong direction. Like, yeah, well, that's the thing with with the with the normal Audi interface. That is that has always been the case for me because it it was it always seemed to be going backwards. Right. Uh, but with this one, you know, once you figure out, you know, that you have, which way to go to get the to hit the right targets, uh, it's actually fine. And one of the interesting things uh, about the design in this one, um, the the shifter is really quite short, and at first it looks a little odd. So the, the shift lever, it's got kind of a stubby looking. Uh, it's it's like a stubby-looking T-handle with an almost flat surface on the top, and you know, like most uh, modern, you know, like a lot of modern automatic transmissions, uh, it's you know, it's just an electronic switch. It's not actually you know tied mechanically tied to the transmission at all. So you know, when whenever you release it, you know, after you go into drive or reverse or neutral or park, uh, it returns back to its center position. So it's it's sitting there and. What makes it interesting is the placement of the the MMI knob is right in front of it. So actually, when you put your hand down, it it's actually perfectly placed to be a natural wrist rest. You know, and it, it you know, so you put your your arm down, your your wrist go, you know sits on top of the shifter, and your hand is right on the knob there. It it just works really well. It's it's a really well thought out design. Yeah, Audi tends to have really good ergonomics. I mean, I I do. I do have to say I really dislike the way all the German cars have that screen just like plopped there like, hey, we brought you a cheap Android tablet and we stuck it on the <laughs> dash with Velcro. But I mean, that's that's the convention for now. Uh, so fine, whatever. Well, no, I, you know, I, I, I might have mentioned this last time, too. I think the reason why they're doing that, and it's not just the Germans, um, you know, a, a lot of companies are doing this now. Um uh, Mazda does it all right, on all Mazda's their vehicles. Oh, I think uh, I know why. I think I know why. Maybe I can guess. Okay. All right, guess. I think the reason why they do it is so that they can use a single uh, dashboard molding. I don't know. I guess they still have to no. use a second dash cap. But I'm just thinking for symmetry. Like, I, I don't know. Okay, you go. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually um, because it, it actually gets the display up higher, closer to your line of sight. Okay. So when you're when you glance over at the display, you're not actually looking as far away from the road as you would if it was embedded down below in the in the dashboard all right all right that's not a terrible idea 
Yeah, so it, it actually makes a lot of sense. And even uh, Ford on the Echo Sport that they unveiled at the LA Auto Show a couple of weeks ago, uh, the new interior that they're putting on the Echo Sport for when it comes to the U.S. market uh, has is has the same type of layout with uh, a tablet style display mounted up high. It just, uh, so everybody's yeah, well, going that direction. It just looks flimsy. I, I just it, don't like it. It does. Looks. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, when you when you look at it, it looks like it's going to fall off at any time, but you know they're they're actually you know they're securely mounted, um, and uh, once you get used to it, it actually it works really well. And you know it's it's funny you mentioned the Echo Sport or Eco Sport. I, I guess we're supposed to say Echo Sport. That's the way Ford yeah. wants us to say it. Although we say Eco Boost, so whatever Ford. Um, but you recorded an interview um, with someone from Ford about that that we should actually work into one of these at some point. Um, yeah, um, I mean, it's actually a pretty short interview, so if you want to stick it in here, uh, it's with the uh, one of the marketing managers uh, from Ford uh, for the Echo Sport. Um, so if you wanted to drop it in right here, we can do that. Yeah, why don't we do that? Okay, hey, stand by. We'll go to the Echo Sport uh, interview, and then we will return. So, Michael O'Brien. Yes, sir. Uh, what uh, you are the um, the uh, SUV group marketing manager? Okay, SUV. Okay, Here marketing Ford. manager. Okay, so uh, Ford is launching the EcoSport, EcoSport, yes, finally in North America. It's a, it's a product, it's a nameplate that's been available in the rest of the world for about a dozen years or so. Uh, and tell me about why why you're finally bringing this this vehicle to North America. Well, uh, we believe the time is right. Um, the segment has had some growth over the last four years, but we, we are forecasting exponential growth uh, from here through 2020. Uh, so we think the time is right. Um, we also are mindful of, of the consumer trends of minimalism and less is more and being responsible in all your purchases, uh, and we're seeing that. So as baby boomers have aged and had you know explorers and expeditions, a lot of them are downsizing, but they love the utility of, uh, of an SUV. Uh, in addition, as we were talking about earlier, um, Millennials, 80 million strong, um, are now getting into child-rearing ages. They're in couple stages, uh, and they're looking for more utility. They grew up in the backseat of utilities. Uh, they love the uh, the capability, um, and we see them uh, getting in this space quite rapidly. So what have you changed uh, for the North American market version that's coming, uh, I think, in early 2018 relative to the version, the second-generation model that's been on sale for, uh, I guess, about three years now yeah. overseas? Yeah, you know, um, the vehicle has been specifically tailored and engineered for the U.S. market. Um, we were chatting earlier uh, about suspension tuning. We were chatting earlier about NVH um, to make sure it meets the requirements of the U.S. consumer. Um, obviously, crash requirements, obviously emissions requirements, uh, and things of that nature as well. And, and, and technology as well. Right. Uh, Sync 3 and the 8-inch screen, those are real uh, real strengths for us. Yeah, so the, the basic body shell looks like the one that's been available overseas. Uh, you've got a new grill, mm -hmm. new new, yep. uh, new back end, yep. uh, but you've completely revamped the interior. It's all, right. all new. That's right. Um, what else what about the, the powertrain? What are you using for a powertrain for North America? Yeah, so the entry powertrain is our one-liter EcoBoost, uh, which uh, Eric was mentioning is three-time international engine of the year. We're really excited to have it in this product. Um, and then the uh, step-up powertrain will be a two-liter GDI, um, and that'll be the all-wheel drive version. So you have front-wheel drive one-liter and all-wheel drive two-liter. Excuse okay. me, four-wheel drive two-wheeler. And similar power outputs we can expect to the, those ver the versions of those engines that are in the Focus today? Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll have more information about the power outputs and fuel efficiency down the road. Okay. Um, anything else you want to share about about this car? I mean, what? Where? I guess where? Where do you? Where do you think that this vehicle? Um, gives, what? What have you done that gives you an advantage over the other vehicles in this segment that are you know really starting to get hot right yeah, now? Yeah, they're growing. Um, you know, frankly, I, as I was mentioning earlier, the one thing they don't have 
um, is the Ford badge on the front. Um, and the Ford badge on the front, as I mentioned, we're the best-selling utility brand in the U.S. for the last 25 years. Right now, the favorable opinion on Escape, Edge, Explore are really strong, um, and we feel like this vehicle is going to fit great in the showroom and get a lot of momentum because of the other vehicles around it as well. Okay, yeah, great. good. Thank you very much okay, for your time. Sam, appreciate it. Man. Appreciate it. Okay, and now we're back. <laughs> um, so overall, like, I guess, A, how is the weather? Because Audis are wonderful cars when the weather is not wonderful. Um, and it's been, it over the last few days, it's been really snotty on the East Coast. Uh, did you drive through any of that? Um, no, actually, the, the weather um, on Monday and Tuesday when I was driving to Pittsburgh was actually, turned out actually to be really nice. Uh, there was some rain that was following behind me by a couple of hours. But for the most part, the the road was pretty clear and it was it was a good clear drive. Um, but you know the the thing about you know driving any German sports sedan, you know they're they're really designed you know for autobahn driving. You know so for driving at higher speeds, um, you know on long long stretches and you know it's just it just feels really solid and stable. Um, and you know even when there's there's bumps in the road uh it's just it just feels really well composed all the time which is i mean that, i think that's what makes those kinds those cars so appealing and then even when you get onto some rougher pavement uh, you know the audi's not it doesn't feel stiff it just it um you know it's, it's got a fairly supple surprisingly supple ride um you know considering it's you know all wheel drive and it's got fairly big wheels and tires on it um you know so but it, it's 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 just a great car to drive and this one has the um the seven speed s-tronic transmission which is uh audi's branding for uh their dual clutch transmissions uh the shifts were absolutely perfect on this thing you know really smooth seamless you never you never felt it shift but if you tap the paddles on the steering wheel you know it it shifts right away shifts really quickly um the engine's got plenty of power um like I said, the interior is nice. It's roomy. Um, the seats, the front seats, actually were a little flatter than I expected in terms of the side bolsters. Um, you know, it's a, they've clearly um, reshaped it a little bit for uh, wider, um, for, for wider the American, bodies, right, wide, the American wide, wider torsos. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, aside from that, I had no real complaints about it. One thing I did uh, really appreciate is the uh, the A pillars are surprisingly slim on this thing. Uh, you know, that's one of the issues with a lot of newer cars. Um, you know, I think did we did we talk about um, visibility last week? We did yeah. a, a bit, and and like so, there there has there was this point, um, and and I guess it was really sort of around the middle of the two thousands uh, to I guess about two thousand twelve, where. Uh, Pillars got very thick, like across the industry, uh, and part of the reason was like we had crash test standards and rigidity standards and, and side impact standards that that all needed to come up, and uh, not every automaker was using much high ultra high stank steel. Uh, so the only real way to make that car stronger is to add more regular steel um and and so now they've they've gone to a lot more of the ultra high strength steel in the structures which uh, i'm assuming is what volkswagen did uh with the a4 or audi i'm sorry with the a4 that's on the mqb platform right uh no the mqb okay. is the uh transverse platform um oh that's right it's an audi <laughs> this yeah this, this has a longitudinal engine so the the a3 is on the mqb um this one is on the longitudinal platform that it shares with um the a5 and the q5 and what is that uh, a couple is that other models mlp or something? I, I mean that would make um, sense but yeah 
you know, I can't remember. Uh, somebody will find it. In th- some yeah. some combination of three letters. Right. It's just very very German. But I'm assuming yeah. that that's what they they've done is they've they've changed the actual like metallurgy of the body structure so that they can yeah. get the rigidity. With, with uh, absolutely. Um, so you know it's it's a great car to drive. The only kind of complaint I have about it is that. At forty-seven thousand dollars, you know, Ooh. the the only <laughs> well, there is that. Uh, but you know, I mean, compared to a three series or um, uh, a BMW or a Mercedes C class, I mean, it, you know, it's fairly competitively priced. Um, it's not it's not out of line with the competition. But um, the you know, at forty-seven thousand dollars, I would expect it to have you know some driver assist features. It has uh, blind spot monitors. Uh, so the, the radar-based blind spot monitors, yeah. but nothing else. So there's no adaptive cruise control, no no lane-keeping system. I can live without the lane-keeping, but I definitely would have liked to have had the adaptive cruise control on a long road trip. Yeah, and I can see that, like, at that price level, like, for me, personally, like, that stuff I wouldn't pay extra for if I were buying the car. But at, on the other hand, you make a good point. Like, it, it should it should kind of have it at that price point like that's and and you know it's at that fits in really nicely with with the one of the cars i'm driving uh this week so we can talk about that but just how prices have just just climbed and, and the a4 is not really a big car like you like you said like if you were hauling around kids like the, that might i know it's a little larger than it used to be but it's still not great size wise so it's that's a small expensive car yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, it's pretty comparable in size to a three series or an e or a C class. Uh, you know, it's actually probably not much bigger than the car you're driving uh, in terms of interior volume. Maybe maybe just a little bit. Uh, it's it's definitely it's considered a compact. Uh, it's not quite a midsize. Uh, so you know, but you know, like I said the price is competitive. You know, with the segment. Uh, but you know, when Honda is offering. Uh, their Honda Sensing package for a thousand bucks on every trim level of of the Civic, you know, you would think that you know at forty seven grand, you might include that. But but when you're Audi, you charge more because you can. Yeah, well, again, <laughs> you know that's that's not something that's exclusive to Audi. No, uh, BMW you know, all, and, all, and well, any, all the all the premium brands. Yeah. I mean, same thing with Lexus and Infiniti and and so on. So uh, you know, as you as you go up higher in price point. You know, you end up paying more for the same kind of things. Well, and it's like honestly, it's it is the it's the same thing. So, so Honda, I'm assuming Honda can can do it because of a, of a couple of things. But basically, they're they're pricing it with a much thinner margin on all of their cars. Um, and they're you know when you get to Acura, maybe it costs more for Acura. Um, I I don't know off the top of my head. You know that the hardware and software is the same because they're the same cars. They're just trimmed differently. Right. Um, and oh. You know, so they're they're basically saying, you know what, we'll eat a little profit margin on this one, uh, you know, because it's a value proposition on something like the Accord or the Civic, um, and it's 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 still a value proposition, but it's more of like an equipment level thing when you get to the luxury brands, like you know, it's 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 akin to having like automatic climate control and all the other wizardry. Um, I, I guess I'm not making the point very elegantly. <laughs> No, you're you're right though. Um, you know, it, they're definitely taking lower margins um, on the mainstream brands, uh, and in part because they want to get the volume out there and, and start getting more cars equipped with this uh, technology. Yeah, and it's it's all this, it's even like down to like MMI, right? Like MMI is Harman, and it's it's very much you know I'm I'm pretty sure it's Harman. Um, so they've been developing and refining that system for for quite a while. 
Um, and, and it's gotten a lot cheaper for them to put all of that functionality in the car. You know, every every few years, you know, new new hardware comes out that integrates a lot of functions, so their cost keeps dropping for the same functions, and they can add new stuff like you, you're seeing with the Android Auto and, and Apple CarPlay. Um, right, and you know, one one more thing about MMI, uh, you know, something that I believe Audi was the first to do back about 2011 or 2012 was having uh, a touchpad. Uh, in this case, it's on the top surface of the control knob, the MMI knob, uh, that it's, you know, like a trackpad on your computer, uh, that you can use to draw letters on or letters and numbers, uh, to enter navigation information, you know, to enter destinations and so on. And it works, works fairly well. I mean, you know, you're drawing, you're drawing the letters, um, but it is rather a cumbersome approach to do, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of slow and, and it actually does take more attention to do that, you know, at, to draw the letters, you know, and see them mirrored on the, on the display, uh, as you draw them and then it recognizes the characters and, and replaces them. Um, it, like I say, it, it works reliably, but it's, it's definitely a slower approach. And if you've got Android auto or CarPlay, you're better off using the Google or Apple voice recognition to do the same thing, and it'd be a lot quicker and a lot safer. Yeah, yeah, I find that I like that's a parlor trick. The handwriting recognition, it's interesting, and it's it's neat, but it's it is it's very clunky, and I just don't ever use it in, in any of the cars that tend to have it. Um, to the point where like the last car I had with iDrive has the same thing in the top of the knob. Um, it'll recognize like finger swipes and stuff, and yeah. I, like it's kept doing weird things until I figured out, oh, oh, it's because I'm swiping and it thinks I'm giving it, okay, fine. So I had to go into iDrive and, and shut it off. <laughs> yeah, Mercedes has the same the same feature as well. And, and it's the same and it's the same thing in all of them. When you have to write one letter at a time, it just doesn't seem like a, a very practical way to do it. Yeah, so one last thing, I think, before we move on to the, the stuff that I'm driving. Um, how does it stack up to the C-Class? Because I feel like the C-Class is really like, the, the the benchmark for that particular segment um you know i think i think it's pretty comparable i haven't um i think in terms of design the uh, the audi design you know it's clearly a, an incremental update from the previous generation a4 you know it's got the lines have gotten a little bit sharper uh, especially around the grill uh you know it's a it's a handsome looking car uh not not i wouldn't call it an exciting looking car um, I, I personally find it very attractive, although I got to say the, the current generation C class, uh, I think is, is a better looking car. Uh, it's a little more styled than the, uh, than the Audi. Uh, but you know, I, I wouldn't turn up my nose at this one. Yeah. Um, I mean the C class is just that to me, that's, that's a current classic. Like that car is destined to be a high point, um, as we we move on almost to like in, in the same way that the original 190e was just like it's it, it just has a presence um they've yeah. done a well, really good job well you know it's job. funny when you when you look back at that original 190e oh, and people today hate it. yeah well not so much you know but i mean just when you look at the design of that one today i mean it it was really boxy very you know? yeah <laughs> it was it was a very in many ways it was a very plain car very understated um you know and to some degree, you know, the Audi is as well. You know, if you want more style, you know, and the size of car from Audi, you definitely want to go for the A5. Uh, yeah. But even, you know, the A5 versus the, the C-Class Coupe comparison, you know, the the, C, the the Mercedes definitely has, the current generation Mercedes definitely has more style 
Um, but you know, I, either one of them are, you know, they're wonderful cars to drive. If you actually enjoy driving, you know, you, you'll, you won't complain about these cars. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know what, that's what I found with the car I'm driving this week. I've got a, a focus, uh, Ford focus titanium hatch. Um, so it's actually equipped pretty, pretty nicely. Uh, almost, almost like the Audi, not really, but, um, it, it does. <laughs> well, actually, it, all of Ford's titanium models are pretty well uh, tricked out. Yeah, it should be because it costs twenty eight thousand dollars. Which, <laughs> I, I mean, again, that's where I was going with the it's sort a lot of, of folks. yeah, with the with the price creep. Like, I, I know cars have gotten more expensive, and I know that you're not going to necessarily walk out of the dealership paying sticker price for that car. But still, like, th- and and also like my perspective is like now that I'm getting older, <laughs> like I remember when when twenty eight thousand dollars bought you like. A Lexus ES like that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying like that's so that's a lot of dough for for a focus I mean it's a good car and you don't have to necessarily buy the titanium but uh I was a two liter right yeah it's the two liter um and it, like overall it's it's a nicely finished car I do I've always liked the way the focus drives it does drives very solid um very very Germanic in that sense um mm-hmm. and it's uh you know in the titanium trim there's a couple of things I I don't like you were talking about the the DSG in in the Audi. Um, this has the power shift automatic, uh, and man, that is just not a good transmission. <laughs> it's uh, it, sometimes it's perfectly smooth and unobtrusive. Other times it's it's weird and indecisive, and it's it's just so I I don't know why. I, I guess maybe maybe there's a logic behind Ford. And other automakers choosing to do the dual clutch gearbox thing uh, versus a conventional hydraulic automatic. Um, it's it, like I, I'm just thinking like the benefits outweigh the the negatives. Uh, you know, the power shift has had lots of calibration problems, and they've, there's been a whole raft of them that that torched the clutches out of out of themselves and yeah. stuff like that. That's not a transmission that gets a, a lot of fondness. Uh, I don't I don't know. Um, is there something I'm missing with the reason for going to that? Well, the the, the probably the biggest difference between the uh, power shift and Volkswagen's dual clutch transmissions, both you know the DSGs and in, in the Volkswagen brand cars and the S-Tronics uh, and the Audi brand, and, you know they're they're the same same transmissions, just different branding. Uh, the the main difference between the two is uh, Volkswagen uses uh, wet clutch uh, transmissions uh, from Borg Warner, ah. which you know they're uh, they're a little bit. Uh, you know they they do tend to shift smoother. Uh, the engagement that's smoother than most dry clutch transmissions, uh, and but you you lose a little bit of efficiency uh, with the wet clutch versus the dry clutch. Yeah. And the power shift is a dry clutch, uh, and it's made by uh, Getrag. Um, and you know that one has had a lot of complaints. Um, Getrag's uh, dual clutch setup has gotten a lot of complaints from a lot of manufacturers or from from customers uh, in other brands as well uh, that use their use their hardware. Um, and I'm I'm not sure what it is in particular that they're doing that's so different that um, you know is causing so much problem uh, because Hyundai and Kia also have a dual clutch a dry dual clutch transmission, but theirs. Um, that one's developed in-house at, at Hyundai, and it's as at least as smooth as the uh, uh, the, the Volkswagen setup. Yeah, the Hyundai one, I I drove that in um, a Sonata Hybrid, uh, which it, that that's a nice setup for a hybrid um, as well. It's 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 
smooth and responsive. Um, yeah, I, that one I don't have as many complaints about. The power shift, I just, I, I just don't like it. <laughs> and then yeah. I, I, um, you know, I'm I'm sure that it's it's more efficient than a you know torque converter automatic. But on the other hand, you know, I look at what Mazda has done with their Skyactiv automatic, where they they fiddled around with the size of the torque converter and the lockup clutch and, and stuff like i don't really think you're you're gonna gain a ton uh by doing a, a dual clutch transmission versus like a highly optimized uh torque converter automatic these days i, th- I think it's it's really just shades but uh, you know they they make the decisions <laughs> not me uh overall though like it's it's a it's a good car you know i've i've always liked the focus it's it's uh got large wheels on it i think they're 17s um so they're a, a little loud its ride is a little stiff it's it's not quite as nice and refined as a golf but it's definitely in in that realm um it's a it's a good car to drive it has sync 3 which has been pretty good uh i actually really liked the way it paired up with my phone and um i had the apps right there so stitcher and pandora uh and um uh spotify so it's sort of like the trifecta that i'm using all the time anyway were right there so i didn't have to dink around with my phone while i'm trying to drive uh that that's really nice uh the ergonomics are, are pretty good and you know the leather seats are pretty comfy to the point where I thought I should actually measure them to see if they'll bolt into the Crown Vic. Uh, <laughs> um, pretty and, sure those won't fit. Yeah, and and you know I mean like overall it's it's uh, it's a good handling, good riding car. Uh, it has a lot of discipline, and it just it makes me think that uh, it, it almost reminds me of the first generation Escort, um, and that almost sounds like it could be bad. But the first generation Escort when it arrived was really Ford's first attempt at like a, a a real competitive car in that class. You know, it was the it was the a global car. Uh, I think really the first global car they had brought More out. More or less. Yeah. Um and it, it basically it copied what everybody else who was having success did. And and it like that was a successful car. Love it or hate it now. Like let's not you know, look back after over 40 years and, and start to throw stones. Like for the time that car was, was everything it needed to be. And it, it was very competitive and very well done. And I feel like this is sort of the, the, the continuation of that effort. Like, it seems like every, I don't know, 15 or so years Ford like manages to, to really do a very good job on a small car. Um, you know, the first generation focus was the same thing. They just let it get real long in the tooth. But when that debuted, it was a very good car as well, except for all the recalls it had. But, you know, I mean, overall, yeah. <laughs> they, they started it out. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm impressed with it. Uh, I'm I'm very impressed that they can charge twenty eight thousand dollars for it. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, again, you know, when you look at the the competitive segment, you know, you can you can get Elantras that are are that price and you can get uh you can easily get a cruise up to that price, and you know, absolutely, you can get a, a golf or a Jetta yeah, uh, up into the upper twenties. So, you know, it's it's not it's not out of line with the competition. Yes, it's certainly a lot less affordable than it used to be, but um, you know, cons- when you look at the the refinement and the amenities that you're getting in the car now, you know, the automakers have come to the realization that you know, just because a car is small doesn't mean it has to be cheap. 
And right. I mean, cheap in the in the bad sense, not not just inexpensive, but cheap feeling. And so, you know, the the current generation of small cars, you know, are vastly superior cars and, you know, generally a very nice place to spend time when you when you've got to get from one place to another, regardless of which brand you're uh, looking at. Yeah, and it, it definitely is. Like it's a it's a car you could get in and, you know, I could do that drive to Pittsburgh from here, which would take me a few hours longer than you, but still I, I wouldn't necessarily be fatigued by the car at the end of the drive. And and it's you know, it, the hatch, the titanium hatch has a lot of niceties. You know, it's got uh, heated steering wheel, even heated seats. It's got the, the Ford Active Park Assist stuff, which is actually pretty cool um, when you need to, to nestle into a parking space. Uh, you know, the front seats, are, uh, the, the driver's seat's powered. Um, you know, they, they've done a very nice job on it. It's it's a hatch, so it's very handy. The back seat's not really too bad. You know, it's 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 a compact, but it's not really all that tiny. Um you know, uh, I think, you know, you buy a Lexus IS, you've got less room than in this car. <laughs> so, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's to make it just a completely wacky comparison, let's say. Um, and, it, you know, it is a very solid structure. So safety's not not bad. Uh, it performs well on things like the small overlap test, which actually when you're in this segment of car is very important because these are still, you know, the cars, the size class that has a higher fatality rate than, you know, something larger, um, you know, just because a lot of factors, but, you know, safety, physics. yeah, it's physics and, you know, there's driver demographics that come into, into play as well. Um, mm-hmm. But overall, like you, you, the safer small cars are, are a good place to be. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I like the, uh, the focus titanium hatch. I wish it were an RS when my, I was out of town actually for work, uh, that day when they dropped it off, but my wife let me know what it was. I was like, Ooh, 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 does it have black (laughs) wheels? And she's like, no, they're silver. I was like, okay. All right. (laughs) Yeah. I I haven't driven an RS yet either. Um, have have you ever driven the focus with the one liter? Yes. The one liter EcoBoost? Yes. I really like that. That's a fabulous little engine. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's gonna, that's gonna be one of the two engines in the, um, in the Echo Sport as well. Uh, in fact, the Echo Sport's getting basically getting the Focus engine lineup: the the one liter Echo Boost, Eco Boost, and the uh, the two liter no- normally aspirated that's in the Focus you're driving right now. Is it going to get the um, the five speed manual? That just whiny like it almost sounds like a dog no, dog box. Uh, no, I think it, I think it's going to be the six speed because uh, the uh, the Focus uh, the the one liter Focus gets a six speed. Only the Fiesta I'm thinking of came the Fiesta. with the five speed. Yeah, I love yeah. that transmission because it's so loud and quirky. It's just like, <laughs> um, yeah. The, uh, the 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 Focus gets a six speed, and I think the Echo Sport's also getting the six speed. Yeah, and Ford's small engines have come a long way too. I mean, I remember for at least a decade or two, the 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 consensus was that. You know, American manufacturers or domestic brands can't build a four-cylinder engine that's as smooth and refined as as what you'd find from from Toyota and and Honda, and that's really not the case anymore. That the two-liter uh, four in this Focus is is pretty good. It's pretty smooth, and you know, it's 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 a four-cylinder, so there's there's always that little bit of vibration that it's going to have, but. It's it's very very good. It's very well behaved, and it's plenty powerful for for what it is. Um, to the point where I was like, "Is it a turbo or not?" I had to look at it and, and go, "Okay, it's it's got pretty strong mid range for for the size of the car too." So, uh, yeah, I mean, not bad. And and uh, 
if you if you want the luxury and you don't want the big car like that's i'm glad that there's all the automakers are, are putting the nice stuff in the, the smaller cars um i did want to update everyone because uh, last week i had the rogue uh hybrid um so I, and i said we'd come back to it uh i got about 31 miles per gallon combined in the rogue that was a question that that i had had uh via twitter uh somebody was interested in what i was getting um, so I got about 31 miles per gallon combined, which is good. That's better than the EPA rating that was 28. So, and that's, that, that's surprising because I did mostly highway with it. Um, I, yeah, where you don't really get as much of the benefit of a hybrid. Right. Yeah. Hybrids tend to actually do worse on the highway. Um, so good, good for them. It's, it's efficient. Uh, it still has very strange transmission behavior, especially in reverse. Uh, it had this weird, like decoupled, feeling where the engine revs up quite a bit but you actually get very little movement from the car so it actually felt like i put it in like four-wheel drive low (laughs) and um and i'm sure that that's a a function of the way they've got that that gearbox it's a pretty unique gearbox which you know we talked about last week the way it's got the motor and the, the the clutch um integrated in there um you know it's a hybrid so the brakes have kind of a numb area at the top of the travel, but they're not that bad. They're easy to, to modulate. It's just something that I noticed. I was like, oh, there's about a half inch of travel here that does nothing. Um, and I, I did wish in stop and go that I could actually use the a B mode, which they don't have in this uh, the hybrid Rogue, uh, where a lot of hybrids now have it, like the Chevy Volt. Um, yeah, to give you more regen. Right. So Because that's nice. You can do stop and go without ever touching the brake, really. Because uh, yeah. it'll just regen more aggressively, and so that it boosts your your economy as well. Um, so they don't have that. I wish they had. Uh, the steering is still weird. It gets very heavy in places where it's like, why is it so heavy here? <laughs> and uh, it's numb, but whatever. Uh, and the the you lose a little bit of cargo space because that's where the batteries are. Uh, so the floor is higher in the in the back, but it's it's really not not bad. So uh, again, it's a good move. It's a good vehicle for the segment. It has its eccentricities, but you know, overall, like if you want a hybrid, you've got a couple of choices now, right? You've got what the Rav Four hybrid and this, and that's that's about it. So, well, speaking of uh, fuel economy, um, on our rundown tonight, uh, you had something about needing another oil crisis. Yeah. What do you mean by that? All right. Uh, so that's just a crazy idea that I had, and and the reason why I say we could use another oil crisis is because, um. When we had the two oil crises, uh, it really spurred innovation. You know, scarcity makes people uh, do really consider their actions. And when things are, uh, you know, abundant, you don't you don't think of it. So you you wind up in that place one way or another. You wind up in a crisis. So if you're if you act like this is a finite resource that's you know we're not going to have forever, even when there's no you know kink in the pipeline as it were you're much better off we saw the benefit of the the 70 it was it wasn't really the 72 crisis like that kicked stuff off um but and it was all all stuff in the 70s like there was economy issue as well but you know in in 77 when gm introduced their first downsized large cars they'd lost like 700 pounds from their their b body cars their biggest cars and uh they gained fuel economy the cars actually gained interior space um and and we saw the benefit of that for another 10 years the the average fleet fuel economy you know 
kept going up until like 87 when all of a sudden gas got super cheap again and uh, kicked off another sort of time of, of being profligate. But in that like 10 years, we got, you know, the rise of fuel injection. Um, we got cars got much more comprehensively engineered. I, I think maybe you can walk me back from that one, but I think they, they really like did a, a sort of total a, a approach that, you know, everything was, was scrutinized a lot closer and we got better tools at the same time. You know, we got a lot more computing power to really run simulations and stuff. Um, so I think that if we were to act like we have a fuel crisis or add extra taxes to fuel, which is always <laughs> popular, um, you know, we could bank money for infrastructure that way. And we'd, we'd really consider uh the efficiency of our vehicles more and the efficiency of, of not just our vehicles though. So it's just like back at the time of the oil crisis too, like it wasn't just cars. It was alternative energy was on the rise and it's, it's come back around again. Uh, you know, solar geothermal, um, all of the, the other alternative methods, uh, you know, uh, none of this stuff is new. Um, and, and so it's, it, I'm just looking going, huh, it's been, it's just echoing what happened 40 years ago. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm concerned that, uh, because we have very cheap, uh, fuel right now, uh, you know, oil is, is being beaten to death by cheap natural gas, uh, and, and lots of supply. So oil doesn't really look like it's going to spike over a hundred dollars a barrel like it had not too long ago for, for quite a while. It just makes me nervous that we're just going to run ourselves out of oil. <laughs> <laughs> and wind up in an issue so that's my hypothesis i you know i realize it's it's, it's some unpopular opinions but I, I don't think it's necessarily bad to be thinking that way i i generally don't disagree with you uh you know i i think you know i don't know i i wouldn't go to the extent of saying we need another oil crisis but i think <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, we, we have we have plenty of crises to deal with and, and plenty more that we're going to have to deal with over the next four years. But, um, you know, I, I do agree that I think, you know, from from a, from an overall um, strategy perspective, you know, like how, how do we deal with the problems that you know we're going to have to deal with, you know, increasing the cost of um, fossil fuels probably wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, it certainly would spur um, more adoption of more fuel-efficient technologies. You know, and that that's one of the issues that uh, the auto industry is facing right now. Uh, you know, as they try to uh, meet uh, in, uh, ever-increasing uh, corporate average fuel economy requirements. You know, just this week, earlier this week, uh, the EPA uh, went ahead and reaffirmed. The 54.5 mile per gallon target uh, for corporate average fuel economy by 2025. Uh, over the past year or so, they've been going through uh, what's known as a midterm review, um, which was part of the original regulation that was passed. You know, um, at, at between 20, uh, 2015, 2016, uh, they had to go back and evaluate how automakers were doing. Um, Relative to the first phase of targets, the, fir the first uh, the the fuel economy targets for the 2012 to 2018 period, um, and determine you know how much was it actually costing to meet those fuel economy targets? What were the what was the cost benefit, um, and how much was it going to cost to hit 54.5, and determine whether they needed to 
maintain the targets where they were or scale them back if it turns out that it was going to be costing too much money to meet those targets and they, that they weren't going to be able to meet those targets. Well, they came to the conclusion that so far the, the automakers have been meeting the targets up to this point and the incremental cost uh, to vehicles to meet those targets has been below what was originally projected. Um, and so they said they, they went ahead, you know, and preemptively before the change of administration in January, uh, decided that they're going to reaffirm those targets, uh, going to stay where they were for 50, at 54.5. The problem is, you know, that's great from a you know, from a regulatory standpoint to say you've got to hit these targets but you still have you know that that's you know kind of from the from the supply side but you still have to deal with the demand side of the equation if consumers don't want to buy the types of vehicles that are more fuel efficient automakers have to find a way to yeah. to um, to get them to buy those vehicles um, you know and you know what we've been seeing over the last year or so especially <clears throat> is there's been some uh, you know, we've we've been seeing steady growth in uh, the corporate average fuel economy for almost every automaker, and it's kind of flattened out in the past year as there's been more of a shift from cars towards utilities and and pickup trucks. So, uh, you know, it's it's becoming a real challenge for the automakers to try and figure out how are they going to get the extra fuel economy um, into the vehicles that consumers actually want to buy. Yeah, well, and so, do it cost effectively, right? And, and I mean, think we're we're already on the path for that. Um, with you know, there's lots of hybrids. Um, it, it the next step is EVs, and the real holdup there is is battery technology. So it's kind of like the idea of how smoking has gotten very expensive, right? Uh, I drove by a store this morning, actually, a convenience store, and they had the sign out there, like a pack of Marlboros, $9. I realize I'm in liberal communist Massachusetts, but still, like, that's 10 I, I bucks for a pack of smokes? Pretty, pretty close to that here in Michigan, too, if I'm right? not mistaken. So do, do the math. That's 50 cents per cigarette, <laughs> right? Like, holy crap. Um, that's, that's just, it's a, it disincentivizes you from taking the action, I think is the, is the point that they're, they're trying to get to. Um, at the same and, time, and similarly, you know, if you had if fuel was more expensive, if it wasn't two bucks a gallon, you know, then consumers would be incentivized to buy more efficient vehicles, um, you know, which could either be more efficient internal combustion engines or shifting to hybrids and, and yeah. plug-ins. Yeah, and, and like I understand there's issues with the, the sort of the battery chemistry and where those materials come from with with electrics and stuff, but you know, we know how to uh, exploit fossil energy. It's not like that knowledge is going to disappear, but the actual fuels may. I, I realize we're supposedly sitting on top of like large coal veins and we can frack for natural gas and all that. That's great. Maybe we should leave that and get better at, because we're already continuing to get better at things like, like solar and lots of other ideas around that uh, can help change the way we consume and, and conserve energy you know if we could figure out solar storage beyond batteries in some way or beyond current battery technology we'd be we'd be a little bit more ahead of the game if everybody has an ev you know this is this is one of the things that tesla wants to talk about right like you've got your tesla in the garage it's tied to the solar system from solar city which is also tied to the grid well now all of a sudden you get in that situation where the, the cars can can sort of you know provide some insulation and capacity back to the grid in some way uh 
it, it changes the the whole infrastructure of, of the way power is generated and distributed. So it, it's it's a really interesting idea that, you know, if you give it a little incentive, and I'm sure there's unintended consequences as well, <laughs> but, um, you know, the one of the things that's making solar actually very cost competitive with, with uh, conventional uh, energy generation right now is is that it's subsidized and if you take away the subsidies it's 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 not competitive um well actually um the the cost of manufacturing solar panels photovoltaic panels has actually really plummeted in the last 10 years um primarily because of uh production coming from china uh so chinese panels are actually pretty competitive now oh boy um, now but, you've stepped in it though you've just china and pan yeah mm. yeah well you know i'm, I'm just saying well, yeah. I mean, you know, who needs it more than we do? China needs it more than we do. Because when we think, oh, again, like climate change, if we can all adopt the technologies, A, it, you know, solar panel production and installation and, and not even just solar. I don't want to bang on solar. Like we got a wind farm that's opening, uh, uh, you know, starting to generate power off the coast of Rhode Island um, like today. Uh, so like there's all of these things that we could be doing that there's there's your and I know people have talked about the new energy economy. So I, I see the upside. I'm an optimist for that and i'm not necessarily anti-oil i love me an internal combustion engine as much as the next guy um so it's it's just like hey let's try some of this new stuff and and the things that kick that off sometimes if you if you either you know naturally or artificially restrict a supply or, or make it more expensive you can you can incentivize other things and, and especially now where we're looking for job growth in the economy and highly skilled jobs uh and and manufacturing jobs um you know, there's, there's, if you create a demand for these things and then you also create the things like it's the circle of life. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the reality is, I mean, we, we've long been manipulating the market anyway. Yeah, of course. You know, there, I mean, there's always been subsidies for oil, you know, both direct and indirect subsidies. And, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, we're, we're probably going to get some complaints, you know, about what we're saying here, but, you know, between, between the, uh, you know, the, the, some of the incentives that are provided to uh, oil producers, uh, you know, in terms of cheap leases on, you know, government lands, uh, you know, and there's all kinds of other uh, incentives there. And then the indirect incentives, you know, through the our military spending, you know, to try and maintain the flow of oil from the Middle East, you know, if you factor that into, you know, the actual cost of oil, you know, the cost of oil is, is actually not anywhere near as cheap as we perceive it to be at the pump. You know, we're just paying for it in different ways. Um, so, you know, if we actually factored in that cost into the pump, the price we pay at the pump, you know, people might have a little bit different attitude. You know, but, there, you know, the reality is right now, at least for for the foreseeable future, you know, we're the, the situation is not likely to change, you know. No, both, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, because you know we're we're we've got an administration that um, and a Congress that um, you know believes in in reducing taxes everywhere they can, um, which you know I'm not totally opposed to that. Um, no, nobody you know, wants to pay tax. Like, sure, yeah, sure. But uh, you know, so you're not you know you're not gonna. You're not going to get any relief on that side, you know, to try and get uh, the cost of fossil fuels up. And then on, on the other hand, you they're also, you know, largely fundamentally um, opposed to the, the even the concept that there is such a thing as climate change or human human caused climate change. So, you know, but basically we're, you know, 
spitting into the wind. Yeah, I mean, I just the the more I, I you know, it's almost like knowledge that has been lost. You know, there's there's a lot of different ways to uh, to to you know, extract energy that we're just sort of th- we're throwing away. Like even here in the fall, right? Like uh, the leaves fall on the ground, and we rake them into paper bags, which then they take and they grab them and throw them in a truck and take them out of here. I heard a really fascinating uh, TED Talk, um, because I'm a liberal Massachusetts communist, I like TED Talks. Uh, <laughs> um, but just the idea, like, you know what? A leaf is actually a solar collector. Think think about what mm-hmm. that is. Like, it's, it's really, it's a solar energy collector, and it falls, and if you compost the leaves... You, you get the energy back out of that by enriching the soil, which means you have to use less, you know, petroleum-based fertilizer. Uh, you know, so, again... That's been my excuse for not raking the leaves over the last 20 years. Yeah, well, I have the guy come. I drive the local economy. I, I pay the guy to show up with, you know, 100 bucks. And, like, yeah, you, you, you do your thing and you take the leaves and drop. I don't care where you put them, but they're not here. Um, but, no, I mean, it does. It makes a lot of sense where, you know, but... You've got companies that are, you know, funding the the ag industry, which is a huge industry that's kind of a, not not overly publicized. Um, certainly not not as many folks are as aware of what goes on in ag as goes on in in automotive. Uh, but you know, there's a few big companies that sell everything from the seed to the fertilizers to the weed killer, and they've got this nice integrated, you know, v- vertical integration model, and uh, they they don't really care about you know, hey, those leaves that fall, instead of spending the energy to pick them up and throw them somewhere, like pick them up and compost them and make so like and I, I know a lot of it is green sky, you know, or blue sky thinking and, and all that. And it's not not entirely feasible, but yeah. So that's that's my proposal. All right. That's my we we could either artificially or uh you know eventually um just through no fault of our own wind up in an oil crisis. So you know, when times are good, maybe we should just conserve a little bit and see. And I, I mean, we're we're getting there. And then the public is, you know, aware of these cars. There's a lot of efficient vehicles for us to buy that, you know, if you want to do your part, you can right now. So the market, That's right. you know, if anybody who loves the free market, there you go. It's a free market um, you, argument use for the mar- use, use the market to uh, to argue for what you think should be done. Right. Right. So all right. that's my proposal. I'm happy to entertain all alternative viewpoints because uh, certainly I'm just uh, somebody who's enthusiastic about things on one end of a microphone. So uh, <laughs> I'm happy to get schooled. Uh, all right. And and speaking speaking of uh, green cars, um, <laughs> while I was out in the out in L.A. Um, at the auto show, I had a chance to sit down with uh, uh, some uh, Tesla refugees um, as well as uh, an ex-designer from Mazda to uh, talk about Lucid Motors and uh, did a little bit of writing about that last week. Yeah, I was reading that uh, post that you had uh, at uh, Navigant. Um, I, first, my question, my big question is, like, why are all these companies focused on, like, premium sedans? Well, I think, I think the reason is, um, you know, when you the, – the cost of batteries is still high. Um, you know, so for a mainstream car, you know, a mainstream electric car is going to be more expensive than an internal combustion car. No, there's just, you know, there's just no way around that right now. Um, and that'll continue to be the case for at least probably at least into the early 2020s, you know, by probably, you know, based on our forecasts at Navigant Research, you know, I think, uh, somewhere, you know, in the 2020. 
324 time frame, you know, we'll start to hit that crossover point for mainstream cars where, where they become, where the, the cost of ownership um, or the, the purchase cost actually comes down, starts to come down below um, internal combustion. But for now, you know, the, the best way, at least it seems, you know, the, the way, the way that most companies seem to think the way to, to make a business out of selling plug-in vehicles is to do it at the high end, you know, go for the premium market uh, where you, you know, generally are going to get much higher, uh, margins, you know, so you can hopefully charge more than it costs you to dev design, develop, and build the vehicle, and then uh, you know use that, you know, at least the, as the theory goes, as as it's been put forward by people like Elon Musk, you know, you start at the high end of the market, use that revenue to fund the development of of more affordable electric vehicles. So the the latest company doing this uh, is a company that um, recently adopted a new name, uh, Lucid Motors. Um, prior to that, you know, the company was originally known as Ativa. Uh, they're a Silicon Valley-based startup that's been around since 2007, and they started off doing battery packs for commercial vehicles. And um, a couple of years ago, they decided to get into actually manufacturing complete electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles. And like Tesla, uh, with the Model S, you know, they're building um, a full-size, high-performance, luxury electric car, um, which they'll actually be revealing the car publicly. We've, we've seen photos of it with, with camo, but um, they're going to be revealing the car publicly in its production intent form on December 14th out in California. Um, I got a chance to see, uh, do, do a VR walk around, uh, out in LA and also, um, uh, see one of the prototypes, you know, the, the development prototypes that doesn't have, um, a complete, didn't have a complete interior in there. But one of the, one of the knocks on the Model S and the Model X is that despite their, their price point, they're, um, not actually all that luxurious, you know, especially yeah. compared to. You know, um, most other uh, luxury brands, um, they're actually fairly Spartan. And the uh, the Lucid car, uh, their first sedan, um, is actually got a really nice interior. I mean, it, it looks, I can't say it feels like it because I haven't, haven't actually had a chance to touch <laughs> the interior. Um, you know, I was wearing a uh, an HTC, HTC Vive uh, VR headset, you know, when I did the walk around. And how, how weird is that, by the way? It. Like how how it's weird is VR? very strange. Yeah. Um, it's very strange. Um, you know, I I've done it before in a in a lab at Ford. Um, you know, but this is the first time I've had a chance to do it with you know a commercial grade set of VR goggles. You know that you could actually go out and buy today. Um, you know the 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 lab at Ford. Um, you know, I mean, we're talking you know many hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, worth of equipment in there. Um, but you know. I actually got to walk around the outside of the car and then, um, you know, sit down on a chair and roll around inside it. You know, so the, the VR model had the interior, the full interior as well. Looks looks gorgeous. Um, one of the uh, the interesting things, you know, they're, they're, they've been developing their own uh, battery cell chemistry, lithium-ion cell chemistry. And they're working with a, a cell manufacturer that they haven't yet announced who that is. Uh, but they're working with a cell manufacturer that will be, you know, producing those for them, and they're claiming that it's got 20% more energy density than the the best cells that are on the market today. So that's that that was what stuck out to me, uh, and that seems like a it's a really ambitious claim, and b while it may be possible, what becomes unstable at that point, especially in an automotive application? Are they making 
basically a car that is the you know the car equivalent of the the galaxy seven um i certainly hope not um because you know i think you know it's a great looking car you know i think uh, derek jenkins uh former uh, mazda designer who is now the uh head of design at uh, at Lucid uh, has put together a, a fabulous looking car and interestingly it's it's actually a little bit it's smaller than a Model S on the outside but has more interior volume uh, you know one of the re- another one of the recent knocks against the Model S is that despite Tesla calling it a large car um, it's actually only got the passenger volume of a mid-sized car and uh, you know the way EPA defines small, medium, midsize, and large cars is based on the the combination of passenger and cargo volume. And because the Model S has so much cargo volume, that gets it to the 120 cubic feet threshold for a large car. Uh, but the interior is actually only comparable to uh, you know like a Mercedes E-Class. And what um, uh, what uh, Lucid has tried to do is actually flip that around. So they've got the exterior footprint. Uh, of an, an E-Class, but the interior volume of an S-Class, which is closer to about uh, 116, 117 cubic feet. That is a, uh, that's a big car. Wow. Yeah, it is It is big. And, you know, from sitting inside in the, the, the VR demo, it certainly seems very roomy. You know, uh, one of the, the packages they're going to have is an executive seating package, you know, so two rear seats, you know, with full recline and, you know, kind of like, you know, first class um, aircraft seats, uh, you know, and they're, they're, they described it as being an, exec, an executive jet for the road. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see, you know, how this thing does. Um, you know, they, the high performance version is going to have uh, dual motor set up with a 400 horsepower motor at the front axle, 600 horsepower at the rear for 1,000 horsepower with a 100, 100 kilowatt hour battery and an optional 130 kilowatt hour battery for a 400 mile range you know, how many um, how many thousand horsepower luxury sedans the world needs is debatable um, but you know for the you know there's certainly a market for at least some number of them um, and uh, like yesterday yesterday or the day before as we record this I think Tuesday of this week uh, they made an announcement in uh, Phoenix that they're going to be uh, Building their manufacturing plant uh, just outside of Phoenix, uh, and they're going to start production in mid 2018 um, of this car. So we'll see. So, what did, did they tell you anything in in particular about their their battery, other than like, yeah, it's our our secret sauce, our special chemistry? Is it is it uh, is there anything that they told you that that stands out, or, or are they not talking about it? Unfortunately, they didn't want to, They weren't ready to get into talking about details about the chemistry, about exactly what they've done differently, or you know how the cell might be constructed differently to achieve that extra density. Um, so I I don't know the answer to that question at this point. You know we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, one thing that I think you know we can say is uh, the performance of the system um, is pretty amazing. Um, they uh, back in the I think in. June or July, they initially released a, a video on YouTube that you can see if you uh, if you go to the Lucid Motors website, um, they've got a link to it there. Um, their powertrain development mule, they were using a Mercedes-Benz Metris van, 
Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it had the battery pack and the motors in there. And, the you know, they've put out two vi- two different videos now. Uh, they the, the second video, they actually did more work on the powertrain and, and improved, improved the performance. Uh, so you can see it drag racing against Ferraris and Lamborghinis and, you know, running zero to 60 times in, you know, um, in the two second, you know, two and a half. 2.7 second range, you know, which is comparable to uh, uh, the Tesla ludicrous mode. And, you know, I mean, this, this thing is it's just nuts, you know, and, you know, that's the thing, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, elect with electric motors, you know, the instant torque you can get from electric motors and having a two motor set up for all wheel drive, you know, being able to put that power down to the road, you can achieve some incredible performance out of these things. But even even on more mainstream vehicles, you know, more you know, mainstream EVs, you know, uh, because they have that instant torque, you know, that that's the thing that most people don't think about when they're buying a car is it's that torque that gives you the drivability that makes the car feel responsive off the line. Yeah, absolutely. And the, yeah. You know, the instant torque you get from an electric motor is just there's nothing else like it. I mean, even the the best internal combustion engines can't match that. Well, and that's why I feel like uh, if, skipping hybrids <laughs> is is fine uh i really really like evs i i like hybrids a lot less because generally you need to couple everything together you need to have something you know that's usually like a cvt and so just the extra amount of slippage there you know the way a cvt drives is is kind of unpleasant um and some of the modern hybrids are a lot better and they're a lot more responsive and they engage the motors to give you that smooth step off um but really like a pure ev is is such a such a nice experience to drive usually it's great oh absolutely um you know although you know again you know the main driver for going with hybrids for now instead of evs is the cost factor you know, um, even even with having essentially two powertrains, an electric powertrain and an internal combustion, the cost of the battery for an, for a hybrid is so much less than the cost you know for a full battery electric vehicle uh, that you know it it's the only way to get you know a reasonably affordable car right now you know that doesn't have the range limitations of some of these first generation EVs like the the Leaf and the Focus Electric and um, some of you know some of the other ones that are out there, you know, with 70, 80, 90 mile ranges, uh, you know, going with the hybrid, you eliminate that problem and do it more affordably. I think you know over the next five to ten years, um, you know, we're going to see much more of a shift, and you know, we're already starting to see that shift now with cars like the Chevy Bolt uh, that are going on sale this month, uh, the Hyundai Ionic uh, EV that's going on sale this month. You know, these these are cars that have you know considerably longer ranges. You know, the the Bolt obviously you know 238 miles. You know, it's got Tesla style range. You know, and after tax incentives, it'll it'll be under thirty thousand dollars. Right. So, um, you know, it'll it's going to be very interesting to see how that one does in the marketplace. Well, yeah, and even the fact you can buy a Nissan Leaf now for like a used one for twenty. And oh, you you can get a used Leaf for a lot less than twenty now. Yeah. Um, well, and, and even the, the new ones, the newer ones with the extra, you know, the extra big battery that, that has a bit of, a bit more range, uh, they're really, with all the incentives and, you know, uh, kickbacks and stuff, they're, they're pretty cheap for, you know, the range anxiety thing is like not really a thing. 
It's, it's a yeah, mental, you know, it, you know? yeah it, it, it all depends on your lifestyle and, you know, how far you have to drive on a daily basis and, um, you know, and kind of where you live and if you have access to charging. I mean, if you live in an apartment um, and you don't, you may not necessarily have ready access to some place where you could plug it in and keep it charged. It's more problematic if you live in a house and you've got a garage where you can install, you know, a 240 volt charger, then, you know, it makes a lot more sense. Um you know, and you know the the other issue, of course, as well as cold weather, um, and that's you know that's been kind of the problem, especially in in northern states uh, with um, EVs like the Leaf. You know, once the weather gets cold and you've got to start turning on the heater and the lights and window defoggers and things like that, you know, then that range drops off pretty dramatically, and then it does start to become a real problem. Obviously, not so much of a problem in a place like California, but that's where you know that 200 mile threshold. Uh, for with cars like the Bolt and the the Tesla Model Three, you know that's really kind of the sweet spot. You know where EVs really could be practical, even for worst case conditions. You know, you know middle of winter time. Um, you know if you've got you know 200 plus mile nominal range, you're still looking at 130, 140 mile range in worst case conditions. So you know if you've got a you know say a 40 mile commute to work, um, you know each way. You can yes, manage yes, that without, without any, without any <laughs> yeah, you can manage that without it, without, without really having to worry about it, even with the heaters and everything turned on, you know, and then you come home and you plug it in. If you were, if you had a car that started at, you know, 80 or 90 miles of range, that wouldn't be practical. So 200 miles is really that, that threshold that's going to make this practical. Yeah. And that, that and the charging infrastructure, and, and we're already working on, on kind of both of those, you know, the, the technology for the batteries is. It's coming along, and, and it's, it's, it's getting there. Yeah, it's getting there. Um, so let's let's move on to the the last thing that we ha- wanted to talk about, um, and it's really you talking with uh, what's it, Mary? Mary Gustansky. Gustansky, right? Uh, from Gustansky. Delphi, um, which is why you were in Pittsburgh. Um, yeah. So yeah, so, t- tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So Delphi, for those who aren't familiar, um, is an auto parts supplier, tier one supplier, um, that. Uh, st- was spun out of GM uh, in the late 1990s, went through a long multi-year bankruptcy reorganization in the mid-2000s, um, and has come out the other side. It, you know, Prior to being spun off by GM, uh, it was known as Delco, you know, and so they have their roots back in the earliest days of the auto industry. And, you know, over the last century, you know, Delco has done all kinds of innovations, uh, invented all kinds of um products like and, the, the starter <laughs> yeah the electric starter and catalytic converters and you know minor things like Some that things yeah yeah so uh anyway um today you know delphi has is reorganized they've refocused they're focused on things like electrical architectures um electronics uh they do a lot of infotainment systems um uh electronic control units and they're these days they're really getting into uh working on autonomous vehicles and um like a couple, some of the other big suppliers, um, they're focused on putting together um, turnkey solutions for autonomous vehicles that they can supply to some of the mid-tier and smaller automakers that don't necessarily have the resources to develop all this technology on their own. So companies like Fiat Chrysler or Mazda or in Europe, you know, uh, PSA um, that may not have the, the expertise to do this on their own, 
they can, they'll be able to go to companies like Delphi and Continental and buy a package of sensors and software that they can then integrate into their vehicles um, and develop and, and put out autonomous vehicles. And another area that uh, I talked with Mary a little bit about was 48-volt uh, electrical systems, which we previously talked about a bit. Uh, so why don't we go ahead and, and run that interview. Uh, I had a chance while I was in Pittsburgh uh, to visit uh, Automatica, which was a company that was uh, purchased by Delphi last year and spun out of um, Carnegie Mellon University. And... Um, also, uh, we ha had a chance to uh, meet with uh, some folks from um, uh, Mobileye who are also working with uh, Delphi on this autonomous technology. So let's go ahead and run uh, the interview with Mary, and uh, then we'll finish it up. All right. Here with Mary Gostansky, VP of Engineering for Delphi. Delphi is a company that's been in business for a long time, since the very early days of the industry when it was um, started, Delco, or actually just Dayton Electronics, or Dayton Electric. Yeah, is way back. Yeah. Yeah. Long, was long, you know, for a long time it was part of GM, now it's a standalone company, and the company's really transformed in the last seven or eight years uh, since its reorganization, um, and gone from being a general purpose uh, parts supplier, automotive parts supplier, to having a much greater focus. Tell me a bit more about what Delphi is, what Delphi is today. So absolutely, and, and having worked at Delphi for 36 years, I've seen this whole transformation moving from what was just component parts for whatever your automotive needs are to really supplying integrated systems and taking the tech world and converging it in with the automotive. So instead of being an automotive supplier, we really are a tech integrator. And what our goal is is to provide solutions for the OEM problems. And the OEMs now need solutions that are, that are complete systems. They're not looking for individual components are looking for an automotive supplier that can take all the pieces, put it together, and make one plus one add up to be more than two. That's really the value to them. So what are the, the main focus areas that, that Delphi is working on today? Um, so really there's, there's three main areas when we think about the convergence of our portfolio in Safe, Green, and Connected. One is for sure safety, and it's taking that, that transformation of what was radar and cameras, providing complete active safety, evolving to really driver assistance, the ADA solution, and then ultimately an automated driving. And so working through the levels, moving from a level two, which is a partially automated, all the way up to a fully autonomous vehicle. The second area and what really enables a lot of that automated activity is connected car. As soon as you bring in your smartphone, you really need to have the, the capability of communicating with that outside world and bringing it inside the vehicle. And so to bring in your device, to make sure that you're connecting with all of the infrastructure that's around, and to give that, that full user experience, you need the connected car. You also need this thing called over the air or automate or the uh, the OTA as many people call it to really provide updates to all that software that's in the vehicle so that you maintain the functionality that you have in an easy fashion without having to keep running back to the service center for, for your OEM. The final area is advanced propulsion and propulsion has been very interesting. We've been predominantly internal combustion engine over the years but we're seeing more and more 
uh, movement towards electrification or electrifying the vehicle, either in some hybrid fashion or pure electric vehicles. So we're working to make sure that we help enable that electrified vehicle to, to really be ready for the future. And uh, speaking of, of software, uh, you, know, you mentioned earlier in your presentation, you were talking about the percentage of, of Delphi employees today that are software engineers. You know, back in the Delco days, you know, they made all kinds of hardware bits and pieces. And so the vast majority of the people, you know, aside from the engineers designing those parts, were the people making, manufacturing those, those bits of hardware from spark plugs to motors and wiring harnesses. But now it's it's very different in terms of the makeup of the company. Absolutely. Our, our, our engineering group has really changed, and our fastest growing competency now is in the software competency, which is software engineering, calibration, and systems engineering. That's our fastest growing competency and has been for the past several years. If I just turn the clock back to the 2013-2014 timeframe, we had a significant uh, amount of software engineering. We were probably one in five. One of every, every five engineers was focused in that area. Last year, we were one in four. This year, we're, we're approaching one in three. So we continue to grow in that area and in that focus. And that's a different area for us. It, it means that you have to provide software that is agile, which means it's lean. It can, it can build off of what was there, and it can be there quickly. But more importantly, it has to come in at automotive grade. It has to have the 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 confidence that it has the reliability to be able to put it into the consumer's hand and work under every condition. And that's a lot harder to test. You don't simply put it on a test machine in the lab, run it for 10 hours and say it's good. You really have to get it out into the system and make sure it is effective under every condition. Yeah, and that's I mean, that's one of the key differences. You know, a lot of, you know, when people think of tech companies, you know, there's companies that make software. You know, they think of companies like Google and Facebook and, and uh, Microsoft that make software, but what they do is very different from what a company like Delphi has to do because the nature of how that software is used and the consequences of failure are very, very different. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. As we design the software, it's not just the function of what you're trying to do, but it's making sure that if anything were to fail in the vehicle, so hardware failure, we've all seen it. We see it on our, our cell phones. We see it in our everyday life. If you have a hardware failure, that vehicle still needs to stop safely and, to, and keep the passenger safe. So you have to think about in a hardware failure, is the software going to react appropriately to keep that driver safe under all conditions? You also need to make sure under, under any type of uh, disruption like um, electric mechanical, so any kind of noise that may come in. And so you might think about your Wi-Fi signal getting disrupted when you're on a call. Well, what if something like that were to disrupt the signals into the vehicle? And are you sure that your software will react appropriately? So it's a very different world when we think about how do you test software, how do you design it, and how do you make sure that it's safe under every condition. So we have rules. And someone asked me yesterday, they said, you know, software engineers like to be, like to do however they want it. They just want to start from scratch and they want to evolve their code and they don't really like to, to follow procedures and processes. In Delphi, our software engineers really have to do that. They have to follow the design rules so that we make sure that we have the functional safety in place. We have the security so that it, it will be protected and that they're starting with the best practices and building from there always so that we make sure that we deliver performance systems that are safe and secure. That is what it's all about. One of the, the newest 
software groups within the, the Delphi family is Automatica, a company that you, that you acquired in the uh, middle of last year, middle of 2015. Um, tell, tell me a little bit more about Automatica. So Automatica had been at this for several years, designing automated driving software, the, the what it takes to continuously have these learning algorithms to automate the vehicle through different different conditions. And we took all of what they had done and applied it to Delphi's structure of engineering. So we didn't mess up what they were doing. We didn't mess up their innovation. But we took their software and put it into Delphi's structure and with our hardware and our system control so that we could advance the automated automated uh, functionality that we need. What I will tell you is by taking a group out of Carnegie Mellon, these fresh graduates that had new ideas, looking at the world very differently from the, from the outside in, they were able to be very creative in the capability that they could provide for automated driving. Delphi then took all of this innovation and was able to put it into what I would call the traditional automotive to really make that advancement in automated driving because that's really what you have to do. You have to innovate, but you still have to keep it in this controlled automotive, automotive-grade fashion that presents a reliability and security to the end consumer that's buying that vehicle. Yeah, and, you know, vehicle automation is, uh, is, it, is an area that's kind of near and dear to my heart because I, I started my engineering career 26 years ago actually working for Delco, Delco Marine NDH, um, on ABS-6 uh, at, at the Milford Proving Grounds. And, you know, the, the things we were doing then, you know, are kind of the and, – and actually, you know, and, and other companies doing it, especially in ABS, you know, is part, kind of the, the foundation of what is happening today. You know, it's built up from that. You know, we built traction control on top of that and stability control. And, and now you're controlling the entire vehicle. Um, what what's uh, what's Delphi's strategy in autonomous vehicles? So as Delphi thinks about this increasing software, and as you said, there's many more lines of code going in the vehicle every day, much more complexity, and you need to have much more computing power because you have to make these split-second decisions. What Delphi believes is you have to move away from satellite com- uh, decision-making, satellite control, satellite sensors, into what we call a, a centralized computing function and plan platform so that you can bring in all the data, you can take all of the data in its in its totality and make that best decision to of what the vehicle should be doing and make it in split second. So you can get the high computing power in one supercomputer versus having a lot of these medium or high-end computers all around the vehicle. So it's a high cost structure to do it that way. It also helps to reduce the um, the insulation and the architecture by, by simplifying that, having the sensors be, be doing the basic operation and all that computing power in one central location. So whether you're doing an active safety sensor or whether you're doing the latest in infotainment, we really want that same structure where we're creating these centralized supercomputing powers that allow us to make the right decisions at the right time to control the vehicle. Yeah, and you know, uh, some of the most advanced vehicles on the road today, you look at them, there's 50, 75, getting close to 100 discrete computers scattered around the vehicle networked together. And you know, what, what you, you've been talking about yesterday and today is um, this CSLP platform uh, that, that Delphi has developed. Um, 
Tell me a little bit more about that and what's what's inside that. What's that all about? So what it allows us to do is, is the, the generic term to CLS, CLS, CSLP is the multi-domain structure. So what that means is you have multi-computing platforms that you put in one box, and they'll have different specialties. So in the case of our automated driving with the CSLP, as you mentioned, we'll have a perception module, and that'll have one high-power computing chip that will actually create all of the perception and make those decisions. There'll be another section that does all of the rules-based to decide what you should be doing as you're driving down the road in an automated fashion. And then a third area that will control and interface with the rest of the vehicle for the safety and, and operation. And that all is in one box, but multiple chips that have different computing and different different specialties to be able to, to create that functionality. Now, they, if you think about it, you said it well, there's there's 50 to 70 computers in a vehicle today, and a lot of these have moved up from basic operation to medium and high-end computing because every sensor has more and more data that needs to be processed and, and the decisions that need to be made. What this allows us to do when we move to this platform is we have one of these supercomputers, and then the other 40 sensors can be more basic operations. So you have this, this differential of low-end basic operation and then a few of these supercomputers that allow you to operate the vehicle versus continuously increasing the amount of high-end computers in the vehicle and the cost, mm -hmm. quite, quite frankly. And um, right now, Delphi is one of two companies involved in a pilot program in Singapore testing um, autonomous mobility on-demand services, uh, doing a pilot test that over the next several years is going to grow into a larger fleet of basically robo-taxis for, <laughs> you know, for, for, for a term that I think most people cannot get wrap their heads around. And as we get to that, you know, it, that's kind of going wrapping around back to the beginning of this conversation, tying those those three things together: the safety, the connectivity, and, and the, um, the automation. Um, bringing all that together, the, all those technologies are, as you converge those, are what's enabling this mobility and, and this this transformation of how people get around, especially in cities in the future. Absolutely. So it starts with that whole electrical architecture and making sure that you, you lay out everything you want to be in that vehicle. And in most cases, those vehicles are going to move from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles because it provides a lot of more power so that you can have this connectivity that you want in this robo-taxi. And because it's in a city, it'll be zero emissions. And so everyone likes that. So you start with changing out your propulsion system, moving to electric vehicles, you take the latest in the connectivity that you'll supply through your infotainment, maybe even increase the capability. So just what you see in your living room in that high-definition 4K TV is now inside your vehicle because now you're a passenger and you really want to focus on the graphics that are available to you in this robo-taxi while you do your first-mile, last-mile uh, commute in these major cities. And then finally, everything that exists for the safety functionality becomes that foundation for that automated function. So that convergence of Delphi, safe, green, and connected comes together to really make these robo-taxis a reality, we think, in the near term, in the 2020, 2021 time period. That's when we believe you'll see these on the road. You see them on today in a prototype fashion, but you're going to see them in these smart cities as they continue to grow around the whole world. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when I started my engineering career and, and started working on ABS, it was, it was funny. You know, at that time, that was one of the most advanced technologies in the vehicle. And for me, it was so cool to be involved. At, you know, at the, what was you know kind of the bleeding edge at the time, and now you know more than 25 years later, you know 
after all the things I've seen, this is actually the most interesting time in my entire career to watch what's happening and how, how rapidly things are changing. It's, it's pretty amazing. It really is. And the interesting thing is everything that we've done, if I look back at my whole 36-year career, all of these individual components, we're still using them. We've, we've, we've really put some smarts to them. In other words, we electrified them so that they can help and they can make those decisions. And then we're converging them all together to really create these systems that are now – the, high, the same high tech that you see in your home every day, you see out in, the, in your personal life that you want in your vehicle, and it's enabling your, your vehicle to be that most sophisticated piece of technology that you'll ever, you'll ever own. And, and hopefully the most reliable, since you know, our lives will depend on it much yeah. more than a lot of the gadgets we use around the house. And that's the challenge, right? And so we all have fun bringing this technology in and bringing the latest solutions, but we always have to keep in the back of our mind that it is an automobile. It has to be safe. It has to be secure. And so that's the challenge that, that every Delphi engineer has is have fun with it innovate, but make sure that you're providing it an automotive grade. Make sure it's safe, secure, and reliable for the end consumer. All right. Thank you very much, Mary. I appreciate your time. All right. Good. So that's... Uh, did you enjoy your time in uh, Pittsburgh? It's lovely. All the bridges. Yeah. I mean, I was only there for only there for a day. You know, <laughs> I, I, I drove down Monday afternoon. I left around noon on Monday and got back on um, about 7 o'clock on Tuesday. That's not too bad. It'd take me uh, much longer to get to. I didn't realize you were actually yeah. so close. But then, what the hell do I know about? Uh, well, well I, I didn't. I didn't really think about it before either. But you know, um, Pittsburgh is in western Pennsylvania, just across the the line from Ohio. Right. Uh, so it's actually not too, not all that far. I didn't realize you were that close. To, I mean, I knew you're, you're you're in Michigan, so Michigan and Ohio are sort of not far from each other, obviously. But I was like, ah, just, you're gonna have to go all the way across Ohio to get to Pittsburgh. I, yeah. If it's not New England, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> you have to understand it's a much bigger country, and I, it's like whatever. Um, right. So, you want to finish up with the uh, the the links and everything? Uh, yeah, I was gonna say we didn't really have any uh, any questions or, or commentary. Um, so again, you know, feel free to to hit us up. We are on Twitter at WheelBearingsCast with no vowels, um, and we are WheelBearingsCast at gmail dot com. Um, and the site is at wheelbearings.media. Yeah, right, there's that. <laughs> and, and you can find all the links there. And for those of you that are trying to uh, download the MP3 file uh, directly, um, there's an issue um, with uh, with the site that I'm still trying to sort out. Um, if you try to uh, download the MP3 from either from the front page or from the post page, uh, it'll in using Chrome. Uh, it works fine in Firefox um, or any other browser. It's only Chrome that's causing a problem. It'll fail. Um, but if you're using Chrome, if you just click on the um, podcast feed link at the top of the page uh, and go to, go to that page, you can click download from there and it'll work fine. And hopefully I'll have this issue sorted out in the next few days. Okay. All right. Good. And uh, yeah, definitely let us know your thoughts. Um... I would would love to have uh, questions, comments, suggestions, especially about my idea about a uh, an oil crisis. Tell me why I'm nuts, or uh, tell me that you agree with me. Either way, I'd love to love to hear it. So, uh, we're both. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that could be true. That's that's true. Um, all right. Well, let's get. Uh, we'll let everybody get past their episode five, and we'll see everyone again for episode six. All right. See you next week. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.